Hello, Doug. Well, hello. Oops, my video is not on. There you are. There we go. Yeah. How are we doing today? All right, I think. How do I know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to know how I was doing, and nowadays I just don't know. Is that what happens in old age? You just don't know how you feel. Um. <laughs> There are, they're like more and more layers. Oh, I see. You know, okay. so, so you see something and something else comes up and causes and conditions and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I got that to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> so how, are, how are you doing? How do you think you're doing? Well, I think I'm doing good. I think you know, I'm feeling good today. It's a sunny day, yeah. a little bit of snow where I'm at, but uh, I'm nice and cozy where I'm at in, inside of my room. <laughs> What's that um statue you have behind you? Is it a statue or a painting? Uh, yeah, right there. Yeah. Um, well, it's an interesting story. Um, during the Senate Watergate hearings, I was um, temporarily between jobs. And so I, would, I was living out here in California then. So I would get up early in the morning and turn on the Watergate hearings. And in the meantime, I had this a book of um, photographs of uh, early Americans their original photographs. And so this was a Pomo Indian oh. um, from Southern California. And I was experimenting with um, using, <clears throat> well, that one it was black ink on white paper oh. uh, and just copying these. This guy over here was done at that, that same time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you can't quite see it. But what I loved about him was uh, there, there was something about his eyes that you could see uh, that this guy had suffered a lot um, but was still just like fully composed and fully present and not mm. prone by that at all. So mm. it, I found it very moving. Yeah, isn't that interesting how you can kind of like feel something from somebody's eyes sometimes when you look, look them dead in the eyes and you can, like you said, almost feel their suffering in a way. Yeah. It's like, part, mm. of, part of it is, and you can't see it there, but his eyes are very moist. Oh, Yeah. You know, there was, uh, there weren't tears coming out, but there was enough, a little bit more, and there would have been tears. So there was a kind of a wide openness to that. And yet, uh, he felt just completely and naturally composed all at hmm. the same time. And that's an awesome story. I feel like that means something too. Like, you know, there's something to that stoicism of that, that image. Well, uh, you know, I was depressed for the first 40 years of my life, and it took just, you know, a lot, a lot of deep work and meditation and therapy and all kinds of things to, uh, you know, work through that. So I have some sort of resonance, mm. you know, with seeing suffering, particularly, you know, people who have um, not tried to rise above it, but actually gone through it and out the other side. Mm. And that's how, you, I mean, that's really the only way to, to do it, right, is to, to go through... Uh -huh our sufferings, right? Or at least confront them. Yeah, yeah, to, um, um, yeah, otherwise you're doing an override and those are fragile. Mm. You know, the Old Testament story of uh, Jacob wrestling with a demon? I don't know that off the top of my head, but if, if you know, feel free to tell it. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the story is there was Jacob and his big brother Esau Mm -hmm. And Esau was this big, burly guy in hairy arms. And, and back at that time, uh, you know, in ancient 
I was probably pre-Israel, but it was you know way way back in the tribal days. Uh, the eldest inherited everything from the family, and the you know anyone less than that would get nothing. So Jacob uh, went to his dad, who was reportedly I don't know 170 or something like that, uh, and his dad was almost blind, and he had a put a uh, sheepskin over his forearm, and so his dad went out and saw him and felt the sheepskin and thought this was Esau. And so dad gave him the blessing, which formally transferred all the stuff. And it wasn't undoable. Mm -hmm. So Jacob had gotten what was supposed to be Esau's. (laughs) And Esau was just, you know, enraged and was, you know, was going to kill his brother. And so Jacob took off and, you know, he left the area and he went over to a neighboring area and settled down and had several wives and family and kids and flocks. He did quite well, but he still had left this thing of trying to set things right with his brother. So he decided it was time. And so they were traveling back. He got all his flocks and his family and his sons and all that, and they were traveling back. And then the last night they were traveling, uh, they came to the Jabbok River. And so they camped on the far side of the Jabbok River. And the next day, was, they were going to go on the rest of the way and meet his, his brother and see if they could settle this. So that sort of gives a sense of what Jacob's frame of mind was. And so the story is he woke up in the middle of the night and there was some being in the encampment. And it was too dark to tell who it was. And, uh, but it seemed very threatening. So Jacob, it was interesting, what he did was he got his family and all of them up and took them across the ford of the river. And then he went back into the encampment alone and unarmed and something grabbed him and threw him to the ground. And so it, he wrestled back and so they wrestled, you know, for several hours. Jacob didn't win whatever this entity was. Didn't win. And then the sun began to come up. And so this entity reached over and with one finger dislocated his hip. So it was like, wait a minute, whatever it was he was wrestling with was really powerful, was holding back. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I left out part of it. So, so this thing said, said to him as the sun came up, release me for I must go. And Jacob said no. And that's when he reached over and dislocated his hip. Okay. And so uh, this thing says, release me for I must go. And Jacob mm-hmm. said no. And then he asked, well, what, I, what do I have to do to get you to release me? And he said, you must give me your blessing. Mm. And so he gave him a blessing was that from him, a whole nation um, it would be the father of a whole nation. Uh, uh, which for that culture at that time was the highest blessing anyone could receive. Mm-hmm. And so Jacob released the demon who turned out to be an angel. Mm-hmm. and limped off into the sunrise. Mm. So the, the core of it, what I take from that, is anything that can really scare you, that can throw you off, um, has got a lot of power in it. Mm-hmm. And you want to wrestle with it, not to defeat it, but enough to get some boom, some blessing. Yes. Yes. It. So like transmutate that energy of whatever that demon or angel right. is into better working for yourself. That's good. Yeah. That's great. And that's, um, you know, that's just like the essential story of no clinging, just let it go. The, I, I kind of see the parallel between that 
uh, story and, you know, the basic tenets of Buddhism. And do well, you... it's, 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 a little, it's a little more central than even that, because the first noble truth, and I see the noble truths, they're actually meditation instructions. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first one says, there's this three-part repetition that says there is suffering, and from which Buddhism get this reputation for being pessimistic, but that wasn't it. It was just, um, you know, everybody think it's being pessimistic. I just ask people, well, if, is there anyone here who's never suffered? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, we all do. So it's just actually a simple kind of mundane, almost obvious truth. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is suffering and suffering is to be understood. And the understand there is not an intellectual analysis but is uh, a kind of deep intuitive knowing about how suffering works. Mm -hmm. So I think, how would you know a good friend? Well, if you know a good friend, you know what they tick, what, how they tick, what, what sets them off, what lifts them up, you really understand how they operate. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so the Buddha was saying that um, you must understand suffering, you must understand how it operates. Um, and so that's, yeah, it's the place where Buddhism starts. Mm. Is um, do you see parallels, like a lot of parallels between biblical passages or other holy book passages in like tenets of Buddhism? Um, well, you have to really dig deep, you know, because I, I think these truths are really universal, and the, and the problem with with Christianity is so much of what we know about in the popular culture is what's come down through the church and which had other kinds of agendas, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But if, but if you go back to the mystics, you know, the ones who are in direct experience, um, you know, it's all there. Uh, I think it's all there. The language is very different. Yeah. You know, um, Buddhism doesn't use, you know, language of gods and deities uh, and that sort of thing so much because it's, yeah, it's, got it's all got your charge to it, it throws it off. It's all, it's all like pointing in the same direction, right? It's just different lingo, different ways to really express universal truths about the human condition. Yeah. Well, St. John of the Cross, I mean, one of his most famous writings, The Dark Night of the Soul. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you look at suffering, Dark Night of the Soul, and how to deal with that, et cetera, and mm. certainly find. Uh, things that resonate between them all. It's difficult talking about Christianity and those others in some Buddhist circles because what most people know is the more popular forms of Christianity, which has a whole other layer of stuff. Mm. But, you know, I read St. John of the Cross or Meister Eckhart or, you know, um, even Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know. They were, yeah. they, were, they were far out dudes, you know, you start reading between the lines and try to figure out what these guys were experiencing. It's like, boy, they were out there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I feel like that's the true essence of, you know, Christianity or the mysticism, the mysticism behind Christianity is the, is the true message behind it. And people yeah. like you just mentioned are, that's really what it's all about. And I mean, is it, why has it been so construed over the years of people just through human nature, just kind of uh, corrupted it in a way? Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, if you look at Buddhism and then um, you look at the Buddhist text, 
you know, there are some places in the Buddhist text where they talk about the Lord Buddha, uh, and he's really this elevated guy. If you go back to the very early text, the Uddhavidika, the Udana, the Sutanapada, uh, there's no elevated guy. There's, the, there's this guy um, who they usually call the wanderer, mm -hmm. uh, who was obviously deeply loved and deeply respected, but he's actually uh, comes across as really, really human. Uh, and then there are some texts that were probably written down during his lifetime, and then there were other texts that were, weren't really written down until three or four centuries after the Buddha died. Mm. And, wow, uh, that is, in, when 400, 300 or 400 years is insane, because that's the difference from 1620 to 2020. So right. if, there was a, if there was a Buddha in 1620, it would take, we would just be writing it down right now in terms right. of that. That is, and, if we, and if we didn't have any record except what was passed down orally for 400 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is even more insane, too. That's yeah. okay. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, that was okay. And, and it was an oral tradition. You know, they did have writing, obviously, but, but the writing was for, you know, contracts. You know, I'll, I'll give you so many cows or so many chickens, you know. It's, it's, yeah. But, but, you know, sacred material. You don't put into that mundane written form. You know, sacred material had to be alive, so it was passed along from person to person. Yeah. Do you think there's something to oral transmission rather than uh, transmission from text? Because there, is there something that's lost in translation from when literally I'm talking about the Buddha or whatever, and then if I were to write down something? about the buddha's lessons like is there something like is it some kind of like weird energy that isn't transmitted or something that's just a little different you think yeah yeah um you could look at it even in simpler terms i mean i can tell you something you know and you can't write down what i mean what mm -hmm. you can write down is how that impacts you and your understanding Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and yours can be quite genuine, and there can be close alignment, but it's as it, you know, as it comes through you. Yeah. And so, um, it's like another variable because it's like, yeah, it just it's just like another point of translation in a way. I see what you mean. Yeah. So if you really want to understand the text, <laughs> what I think you have to do is I always get like five or six translations from scholars I trust because my understanding of Pali is not that good. Um, and look at all the different ways it's translated and then take all that into my own experience. And it's sort of with a question, what is it the Buddha might have been saying that could, um, let me just turn this off. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, what is it that the Buddha might have meant that could be translated or mistranslated this way. Mm. And then through that, you have to feel your way back in with your own experience. Mm. And that's as close as we can actually get. It's not mm. very satisfying because we want to know what he actually said, you know, as if there was somebody back there with a TV recorder <laughs> or something like that. But um, yeah, that's like a, it's like a scientific approach in a way. Yeah. Simple side, you know, take it, experiment and see if it works for you. Take what you need and, and check out what the results are and then keep experimenting, whatever works for you, it seems. Right. 
that's a simple then process. Come back, then, then come back and look at the text again. And sometimes mm-hmm. there will be passages there that just don't make any sense to me. And then my practice goes deeper and I look back and say, oh, that's what this guy was talking about. No <laughs> idea. Oh, that's great. So actually, before we go any further, I love how this conversation is uh, has transpired so far. Do you, if you could actually give a little bit about yourself and your practice and how you came to be where we are right now and on uh, December of 2020, and uh, then wherever the conversation goes, we can take it. Okay, okay. Well, I don't know how far back to go. So <laughs> I, I, I always was drawn towards um, this sense that um, there's more to us than meets the eye. Uh, and so I was always curious, you know, in, in exploring that. Um, so that was always there. And the other thing that was, that was there uh, was that I was chronically depressed for the first 30 or 40 years. Uh, and what that did for me was that I couldn't just cruise you know, a lot of people just sort of cruise. Well, if I just cruised, it went downhill. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. So, so I had to keep looking at this stuff, and I had this curiosity, you know, to start off with. And um, so, I was um, I was a minister of this little tiny church, um, Unitarian Universalist congregation in Central Massachusetts. Um, and Whereabouts? Uh, Ashley, I, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. I live in um, Taunton, Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is East Hughes, State North cool. Pittsburgh, um, which was interesting because my great great grandfather, my father's side, was Fitch, was was the guy who um, founded Fitchburg, Massachusetts. So somehow I ended back there. Wow, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so I was in this little tiny church, and I had Daniel Ellsberg came and talked to my church, and uh, Scott Nearing, and um, um, and all these you know, far out guys, you know, back in the late 60s that were doing things. And somebody said, well, you know, you ought to get a spiritual dude to come out here. And so who do you want? And they said, well, how about Ram Dass? And so I said, you know, what the heck? So I wrote this note to Ram Dass and asked if he would come and talk at my church and said, we're a little church, you know, out in the countryside and we draw people from a ways, but we're not a big thing, but, uh, you know, we need inspiration here too. And I was just blown away that I got this note back and he said he was going in a retreat. He'll be out in about six weeks and he would be glad to come. Wow. So what year was this? This was uh, back in the early 70s. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So he came out to my church and um, I gave him dinner, you know, and did, and did all this thing. And I felt like, you know, um, for the first time that I had met somebody who actually knew something about something. Hmm. I wasn't sure what, but I wasn't sure I had ever met anybody who knew anything about anything. But he, he knew did. something about something. He knew something just by, you could just tell by his, uh, his energy. The, his energy and the way he talked and his mm. presence, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, meditation seemed to be important to him. Mm. And so I wanted more of what he had. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was just that, that kind of spiritual greed mm-hmm. and um so i asked him you know what to do and he said well in massachusetts there's just this embarrassing abundance and the insight meditation society had just been started out in western mass and uh, joseph goldstein jack cornfield and stuff 
So I wrote to them, I signed them for a retreat and I just kind of went in cold turkey. Uh, for, so you uh, never really meditated ever before? And then you just were like, hey, I want to be like Ramdas, kind of? <laughs> I want I want what some of this guy has? Well, I had been meditating on and off for years, but you know, it was one of those things where I would meditate for 10 minutes one day and 20 minutes the next day, and then I'd forget it for three days. I see, I see. So I just sort of flopped along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided that, so well, if I did a 10-day retreat, at least I'd get some momentum going. Mm-hmm. And so I signed up for the, I think it was a two-week retreat. And, <laughs> and I remember the first evening, you know, sitting down there and sitting there and starting to meditate. And then it dawned on me that I had, you know, nine, 10, 13 days left of doing nothing but this. And this big light went off in my head and said, mistake, mistake, mistake. <laughs> you know, how was I going to do this? So I to fumbled through that whole retreat uh, and you know and it was uh, it was really really messy um, but Say messy messy oh why is that you know I, di- I didn't know what I was doing and oh. I was trying you know and I was fumbling around and doing this that and the other mm-hmm. but when I left the retreat and and got home I started meditating um, for an, an hour to an hour and a half in the morning an hour and a half in the evening I have haven't stopped since so that got me started and I went back the next year. And, and um, so I was off and running. Mm. And um, then in 2000, I moved from Massachusetts out to Sacramento, mm-hmm. became, the, became the lead minister of this large Unitarian Universal congregation. And, um, and I went out to Spirit Rock and I connected up with uh, John Travis um, who was a uh, teacher at Spirit Rock, um, who's, who's just really wonderful for me. And, um, and so I started going seeing him once a week mm-hmm. and doing more retreats. And he introduced me to uh, art. I realized that I was going into jhanas. I, I didn't mm-hmm. quite know what jhanas were, but I heard uh, Larry Rosenberg talk about jhanas formally and and i thought jhanas these are for real meditators these aren't for me and so as he was talking about he sat and meditated and ignored it but uh as he was talking i realized he was actually talking about states that i've been going in and out of but nobody had ever spoken of and so i mm-hmm. went and talked to him about it mm-hmm. and he said yeah that's the first jhana that's the second and um and i started I, I got a little weepy and I said, you know, I've been struggling with this all my life and I didn't feel like um, I've ever gotten any place. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, um, uh, you know, I don't remember what the words, but there was something that fact is I pronounce you a good meditator. But it, it, was, it wasn't that. It was just like formally sort of really acknowledging mm-hmm. that. And I yep. just got weepy about it. Mm-hmm. So when I met uh, John Travis and was talking about the jhanas, he knew this um, this guy that he'd known for a long time, Bhante Bhimla Ramsey, who did a lot of work with the jhanas. And they weren't the um, concentration jhanas that let you hear more about. They were really more awareness jhanas or based more on the text. Mm-hmm. And so I did my thing. I wrote to him and said, I'd like to come do a retreat with you. And I went out that was 
2005, and I did uh, probably two retreats a year, 10 to 14 days each. Wow. That's and, awesome. Uh, and, and he was really quite gifted at recognizing where I was and how to work with that. And so I just kind of moved up through the jhanas mm. you know, really quickly. Do you think you need a teacher like to help you? Do you think it's like needed or is it just very, very helpful to have somebody that's kind of guiding you along your spiritual journey? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's, that's a good question. There's not a good answer to it. That, yeah, it's probably different uh, for everybody, right? Yeah, and it depends on temperament. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a, a, a student of mine in, in Europe who uh, had meditating, fumbling around for about six months and hadn't gotten anywhere. Mm. And, and he got a hold of me and we started talking. And um, within six or seven or eight months, uh, he'd gotten stream entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I could have it took me 40 <laughs> years, 30, 40 years and stuff like this. I was, <laughs> uh, and so uh, he was clearly, you know, quite gifted. You know, just naturally, you know, good karma, etc. Uh, yeah. um, and me, I stumble around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I get there. And so I think uh, a good teacher who really knows what they're doing can um, keep you from going down quite so many blind alleys like uh, I am. So it's like uh, guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think people who have difficulty learning it in some ways are actually better teachers mm, why is that um because somebody who is just really good at it uh, may not really understand all the blind alleys people can go down oh i know what you mean if somebody's just a natural they don't know right how how they could really mess themselves up or other people could mess themselves up i, I, I know what you mean so i don't i have very few students who stumble around who I think, oh, yeah, I've been down that alley, you know. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So w- through these, um, you know, various practices with various teachers, you have relieved your, essentially, putting it simply, you relieved your uh, mental sufferings in a way, like your depression that you spoke about, it, it brought you like to a sense of ease and peace or happiness in your life. Yeah, although it's it's actually a lot more complicated than that. I, mean, I can imagine. I, 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 I'm certainly not enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what I've just been realizing recently was some old habits that I had from those years of fighting my way out of depression. Mm-hmm. Is that um, is that the whole trip is a lot further out and just a whole lot simpler. Uh, and there was a part of me that was still trying to keep um, unwholesome states at bay, mm-hmm. you know, keep them off. And at some point, that just doesn't work. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's actually aversion. If you're trying to push a negative way, that, you're, at, you're adding aversion to aversion. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and again, we can go back to the, Know the others or the four new truths if we want, but 
part of what the Buddha talks about in that is um, at some place, uh, it's just turning towards the wholesome. And, and as you cultivate those wholesome qualities, they will bring everything else along. Uh. So that, um, for example, now I can sit down to meditate and I've learned a lot of techniques and stuff and I can work very hard at it for taking about 45 minutes and gradually my mind will quiet down and quiet down. You know, it gets, gets into a pretty nice place. Other times I can sit down and meditate and I'll just turn my mind loose. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it runs around like a banshee on speed or something like that. It just goes crazy for five or 10 minutes and then it drops mm-hmm. without any warning into this deep stillness. Oh. And so I think, you know, I can work really hard at this and I'll get quiet in about 45 minutes or I can do nothing and the mind will quiet itself <laughs> five or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I wish it was that simple, but because there's sometimes in the band she will go on forever, and I, you know, I need more techniques and, and stuff like that. But I think what I was trying to get back around to was that um, wholesome and unwholesome states are not enemies. Mm-hmm. That um, I can be. Um, well, I'll find it sometimes, you know, in this pandemic, you know, it's sometimes the isolation just gets a little old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I can feel a little bit slightly depressive, something like that. And then, so I go out and I live near the American River and I so walk it along the river and I look up and there's a tree there and the tree doesn't give a damn whether I'm happy or sad. And suddenly I look at the tree and I don't give a damn whether I'm happy or sad. I just am what I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at that point, I realized I'm grinning like an idiot. Uh, you know, there's this deep sense of well-being that suffuses through me, and there's still some of the, the gripping of, you know, being you know tired or bored or lonely or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that those can coexist together. Mm-hmm. They and, have to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're always trying to get rid of the unwholesome and get the wholesome. Yeah. But if we just cultivate the wholesome, uh, and then gradually that'll penetrate it. And I don't think the unwholesome actually completely disappear mm. until we don't care whether they're there or not. Yeah. And so they just sort of fade into the background and slowly, you know, sort of drift off. And then there's this well-being. Mm. That is that is the uh, weird irony of it. it's. I mean, it's essentially like yin and yang. It's like you can't you can't have the wholesome without the, the unwholesome, and you can't you have to embrace that. There is no getting rid of it. It's essentially just it's like a, I know what you mean. It's like energy. You can't just have the yin and you can't just have the yang. You need both. It's just um, it's just recognizing it. I know what you mean, because a lot of people just like you said, are, are averted to all of those negative things. And it's just the more you shoo it away, the more it makes it stronger. Which yeah. It seems counterintuitive. <laughs> it's, it's a demon's blessing. The demon's blessing. That's good. Yeah. So, <laughs> we'll come back to what we started. Mm. Wow. So what um what have you how am, I, how am i trying to say this 
what where are you at now from all of these years uh are you like you want to spread this knowledge to others are you is your place to be a teacher to like that's what you are right you are you're a meditation teacher right yeah so you're spreading the love essentially right you're trying to make have everybody else be on that same wavelength and uh, using the same practice that you had yeah so um so just say it very succinctly there every morning when i my first sitting i do refugees precepts and aspirations and the the last line of the aspirations um i just reworked them several months ago goes um when sending and receiving kindness feel the same hmm, that's good self, I like that self um, dissolves in contentment and an ambition fades into timeless presence. Wow. That was you? That's your, those are your words? Those are my words. Can you say that again? Um, when sending and receiving kindness feel the same, like whether you're sending or receiving, it's actually the same space inside. Mm-hmm. Self as a separate what's the thing self dissolves into contentment and ambition the desire to get someplace you know fades into um i first said eternity but that's got a little bit too much churchy stuff to it so i ended up uh, fades into timeless presence that's good so essentially it's through our love and selflessness we become selfless ourselves like you know, <laughs> we become we fade into just that flow of being a good person kindness and goodness and essentially that makes us happier it's like that's the way we're following the path like the to make us happy and the path isn't necessarily through materialistic gains right it's yeah. through just being a good person it's that simple yeah and it's a little further out than that it's not that we change or improve ourselves Sorry, I don't. It seems like the sun is in your eyes on the video. Oh, if you want to adjust, it's yeah. if, if it's uncomfortable for you. I just, I just wanted to uh, give you time to adjust it, just because of something I noticed. No, that's um, yeah. We're three hours earlier than you are, and so the sun is coming up over the trees there. Oh yeah, that's that seems like a lot better. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um. So. Um. The essence of it all is really non-dual. So there's not like there's not like a, a demon to wrestle the blessing from. The, the blessing is, is actually there. So they um, in Buddhism it's talked about as the two truths. There's a relative truth and the absolute. Mm-hmm. And so in the relative, you can talk about getting somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how the um, consensual, the normative you know, world operates, but behind it all, um, behind it all, I'm not really a separate organism. Mm-hmm. You know, if you took my, if I went straight up 300 miles, um, dressed like I am now, you know, in a minute or two, there'd be nothing left of me but a bunch of ice crystals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I cannot survive unless I'm embedded 
and this thin layer of an ecosphere here with all these other creatures and, and everything else. So on some fundamental level, I am not separate. I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, an energy movement in this total flow. Mm-hmm. And I think from evolutionary selection, people who are just at peace with everything tended to get eaten and taken out of the gene pool. <laughs> and those yeah. who are paranoid about protecting themselves, they live longer. So we have deeply wired into us this belief and understanding that we're a separate self and that's how the world operates and we can do all that. But behind it all, it really isn't true. Yeah. And so it's, it's really, uh, it's about attuning to what's actually here rather than attaining it. So mm-hmm. the, the, the peacefulness and, uh, and the kindness and the compassion are not something that we can find or create. They're something just, we tune into? Yeah, that we have, you know, I have a chapter in one of my books, I call it uh, attuning, not attaining. There's nothing to attain, but there's something to be said for attuning, mm-hmm. you know, to what's there. And so that's, that's the truth of what we really are. And so the art of it, because, you know, in Buddhism, it's not either extreme, it's a middle way, there's both of them. So it's acknowledging the relative world when you're on the other side of the continent than I am, and we're talking through this mysterious, magical electronic technology, <laughs> and the sun is coming up here, and it's yeah, probably, you know, reaching zenith where you are, and all that separateness. And yeah, uh, on some real fundamental level, there's um, underneath all of those layers of stuff, there's a place in me which is actually no different than this in you. Mm-hmm. you know? yeah. and, all, and all that just exists at the same time. Yes, that is, well, that was beautiful. Yeah, there's no separation, there's no locality to our unity. You know, yeah. it's just, it, there, it transcends all matter transcends all space and time that unity is this everlasting um presence in a way that is just always with us i know what you mean 100 percent. and so there is there is a me that's separate than you mm-hmm. within a certain time frame so if the mm-hmm. time frame gets narrower and narrower and narrower, okay, I'm here and I'm there. But if we spread the time frame out to a, like a couple thousand years, then that clearly who I am is something that rose up and came together and then dissolved and went back into everything. Yes. And yeah. so at this moment, I have a being, but in timelessness. The, in timelessness, the, yeah, you don't. Coming and going. Yeah. In time, we are just a collective being, it seems like, yes, we in this very small amount of time, we are these small beings, but through the large amount of time, which even human beings haven't even been around that long in relative to, to the universe. So, I mean, what we are into like billions and trillions of years is this crazy cosmic creation. But yes, in, in terms of humanity, if you do uh, space out the the history of humanity it, it seems to be we are this collective being um that is a result of billions and billions of very short uh spans of beings that think they're not part of the collective or at least they seem to have some kind of amnesia about the collectiveness <laughs> and from that we have created this this the human race which is really at our truth at our core 
one being in itself. Yeah, we are fireflies. <laughs> See, that's a scary concept for, um, I mean, scary concept for me. I'm not going to say I'm above that concept for pretty much everybody. And uh, throughout my practice, at least, is, it's brought me peace to be at that, to, to know what we really are. Because if we do believe that we are just this separate being, this ego that I am Gary Haskins in this meat soup, then yeah, that's going to cause a lot of fear. That's going to cause a lot of suffering. That's going to cause a lot of just like emotions that aren't true to myself. Yeah. But if you do these practices, these meditations, yoga, whatever you have to do to reach that, those states of, um, I guess you can say enlightenment or awakening or just states, uh, other states of awareness to see that what we just explained, to know what we are. We're just part of this giant organism in this crazy cosmic conundrum. Then it kind of makes that feeling of dying uh, not so I don't know if you want to say bad, just makes it not so fearful. It's just like, oh, this is just the process. You know, this is kind of what we're living in. This is life and death. There's yin and yang. It's it's how it's supposed to go. So essentially, uh, the, the biggest thing that I've got from my meditation and yoga practice is kind of like, I don't want to say 100%, but it's kind of um, negated my fear of dying. I'm, I'm not going to say it's 100%. You know, if it was a car coming at me at 90 miles per hour, I'd obviously step out of the way. Or I'm not going to like self-immolate myself in the streets. But it has to a large majority um, of a large percentage of, you know, of my fear of death has been kind of just, I don't know if you want to say put in the background, but like I kind of understand it more. It's kind of like more of a comprehension thing rather than an actual just like staying up at night and fearing about it. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Like I was, yeah, I was yeah, explaining no, my I, practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm with you. And, uh, and I, what, fascinates me and all this in the process of all of this is actually the process of identification yeah you know, we identify with this body with certain thoughts uh, our stuff uh and so part of what i what i think is just far out to look at is actually watching the identification happen oh yeah mm -hmm. because i think it's wired into us mm -hmm. again if everybody was like you and really not scared of death. You know, your genes would be taken out of the gene pool much more quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you didn't have enough fear to step out of the way of the car. Yeah. So you have a, a blissful life and then you're gone. You're irrelevant yeah. to that. It's not even uh, not having fear. It's knowing how to work with your fear, like we explained before. Right. Like you need both. It's not not obviously I'm I'm a human being. I'm doing the fear thing. Right. It's more of just knowing how to respond to it in a way. So I'll tell you the, the thing that scared me the most in the past, uh, I don't know, several weeks or several months, mm -hmm. is looking at this whole identification process. It's what? Say that again? Looking at this identification process that goes mm -hmm. on. In mm -hmm. and, um, and I don't know about you, but there's like a voice in my head. Yep. And, um, you know, that's talking about stuff. My voice likes to explain things a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know that's why I became a teacher or whether there's a byproduct of it, but that happens. And sometimes it complains and sometimes, um, you know, it's celebrating and sometimes it's bragging and sometimes it's uh, apologizing and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so as I was just watching the voice and, and rather than thinking about the content, just listening to the voice, uh, I realized 
uh, there's nobody there. Hmm. You know, whoever it is, I think I'm talking to, there's actually nobody there. Wow. Yeah, we and, and, and it's like, it's such a simple, obvious thing, but I, I felt like, you know, the old uh, Roadrunner cartoons where Wile E. Coyote chases the Roadrunner off a cliff and he goes out <laughs> for a while before I realize he doesn't, there's no ground underneath him. That's what I felt like. I was just, I, I was just yeah. Mm -hmm. There is, and it was, um, it was both terrifying and I found myself grinning like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> kind of where we started. It was the, both, both the fear and this tremendous, you know, freedom at the same time. And I, yeah. it's not that I've arrived or anything, but watching the voice inside me, not the content, but the tone and the texture and seeing what it's doing mm. uh, kind of helps me see it as a process rather than what I am. Mm. And that what I am is completely mysterious and, you know, and, and evaporates, it can never be pinned down, but I can see uh, how the mind processes create the sense of self. Yeah, I, I feel like that is, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and if you can see the sense of self being created, whatever's watching it is not it. Yeah, exactly. Then who's watching the witness? Yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is awareness. And yet, what is it that's aware? The noun behind it mm. can't really be known. We can know the process. We can see a process going on. But what it is is it's actually experienced. Because no matter what you experience or who you think is experiencing it, you can always turn your eyes and look at that. Mm -hmm. So what is that that's looking? Mm. What is that that's looking? What's, what's looking at? Yeah, I think that's just how our mind works. It's always looking for a subject, subject object. That's just, it's also how our language is kind of structured. It's just like, we're always looking for that subject object, subject object, polarity. And there's something that is art we always want to cling to, but I think it's the essence is lying and really identifying with not, it's not even identifying with non-self. <laughs> It's not. don't right. It's don't identify with self and don't identify with non-self, which doesn't even make conceptual sense. <laughs> yeah, and so where I go with all of that is, I always try to trace this stuff back to an evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. You know, and we as a species, we don't have big claws or big teeth. That our number one survival mechanism has actually been to band together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, relationships and interconnections and stuff is deeply wired into our DNA just to survive. Because those who are loners and have these weak bodies are more likely to get picked off by the local predators than the ones who are actually stuck in there. Mm -hmm. And so to see that this identification is relating and talking to you and explaining things and listening and all, all that sort of stuff as something created as a fluke out of evolutionary laws, not something that's got any grandiose epistemological reality of its own. It's just uh, you know, a, uh, a way that we function. Mm. And, then, and there's nothing behind it other than that. It helps our DNA reproduce itself. And that's all that's needed to keep it going. Yeah, not, that's not, not because of some grandiose something like that. 
and even God. And get into trouble, but I'm a minister, so I can do this. Um, <laughs> you know, I think is taking our sense of self and projecting it out. Oh, yeah. You know? Mm. Mm-hmm. So, because there's something about us that just wants to be in relationship. And so mm-hmm. we project it out. But is there anything beyond that? I don't know. It's worth it's worth exploring. And yeah, I don't know if there's a good answer. There is no answer. I think the only answer is that there is no answer. I mean, maybe you can experientially feel certain states that may allow you to come to certain insights and see the universe differently, but there's always going to be, if you're using the mind, some kind of subject and object relationship. I feel like even if you're saying it's just any kind of words that we use or any kind of concepts of the mind. Yeah. There's no way to really that, that not identifying with non-self it's emptiness, right? That's essentially. So we'll go back to where we started, you know, mm-hmm. the, the noble truths. Um, they're not really noble. They're just, they're just, um, Plain or ordinary, obvious observations and way to deal with them. Uh, I think you said in a video that the truths are noble, but the people that are the ones that come to the realizations of the truths are noble, right? Or something along that line? That it's it's ennobling. Ennobling, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the second one um, is, is, the word is tanha, which is often translated as craving, but that's way too narrow. A term it's it, it's actually a tightening and it can mm-hmm. be craving and it can be just like oh you mm-hmm. know all kinds of things and um and then the the practice that goes with that uh, is a very dramatic term it's it's abandoned uh and so as we're looking at all this stuff in the sense of self and who is this and what's it what can be interesting is just to as you're doing that, look inside and see if there's any place that's tightening. Mm. And if you see that, to see if you can soften that and relax it. Mm. And when that goes deep enough, you end up in, I was going to say a non-dual state. It's not really a state, but, but that the separateness of things um, fade into the background. Mm. And, and so from a practical level, it's always looking for the places where we tighten. And it's not even getting rid of the tightness because that just adds aversion to, to something. But it's just, I, I think of it it's sort of like this. If I make a fist and I hold on to it, it can start to hurt. And, and if I ignore it there, I can keep it tight for a long time. Mm. But if I actually pay attention to that, it's actually harder to keep it because I feel it hurts and it's natural. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which when we see the tightness and just open up to it, it just naturally starts to dissolve. To dissolve. Mm-hmm. And as that dissolves, you know, the sense of separateness can still be there as, uh, as a useful mechanism, but to see that the reality behind it is just a shadow mm. And, mm. and can feel that spaciousness, really. Mm. Spaciousness, yeah, that's a good word. How, how would someone recognize that tightness that you describe? Because I know what you mean. I think, is there any other terms that you can use than 
tightness or any other way that you can describe something like, you know, like that negative emotion that you, I think you're getting at like that kind of See, unwholesomeness. It's not, yeah. It's not even, it's not even emotion because, you know, emotions have usually have a story. with it. Mm-hmm. So if you're angry, you can get all caught up in what you did to me and you're, you know, mm-hmm. and it's got all that story and stuff, but I can also look inside and just see if there's tension, tightness, or just even a kind of a density. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what it's like for you adding this energy, but if you sort of look inside, I mean, you're, you're in a certain role that mm-hmm. you're honorably in this, uh, and, um, and there's probably at various times, things will tighten up a little bit and then loosen a little bit behind it all. Yeah. And so it's just learning to watch that. And the thing to be careful with is uh, you don't want to be playing with sharp objects at the time because, you know, there's so much of how we operate that depends on having that, that sense of self. And so as it softens, um, you know, you spend more time with it. Then you gradually get your sea legs where you can be in it, but it can be a little, a little rattling at first. And the rattling is actually a tightening. So, oh, oh. so what I what I call it is um, say my translation of the second noble truth is a practice is relaxing into. Mm-hmm. So if I'm feeling depressed, I relax into the depression. If I'm feeling angry, I relax into the anger. If I'm feeling um, joyful glee at having something, I relax into. The joyful, and so it's always turning towards it and relaxing into it. Mm. First, you have to embrace it, right? First, you yeah. have to confront in a way, or like first, you have to first be aware. Well, the the first noble truth, um, understanding suffering, the practical translation I use for that is turning towards. Okay, you know, there's something going on, and the first thing you just need to orient towards it it's not do anything with it but it's you know it's not go like that but turn towards it mm-hmm. and then see if there's any tension and if there is relax into the tension so you're not relaxing as a way of distancing yourself from it mm. just relaxing into it at which good. point it gets spacious and then it's a long story but the third noble truth i translate is deepening or savoring so when they're Good feelings that come up, you just let them marinate. You just marinate it. Let them soak into your bones, mm. because biologically we're wired to notice pain more than pleasure. So when you notice some uplifted feelings come there, it actually helps to just be with them. Uh, the the word in the text is realize, but I think it's just it's an awkward translation. What it means is make real. How do you make something real? And just let it soak in. Hmm. Wow. And then the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path, right? You follow the eightfold path. Yeah, and I call it an eightfold checklist. <laughs> Can so you go I, through the eightfold checklist real quick, just for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, so so there's a first three, which I call the, the three essential practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's very complete in and of itself, but there's times you can do the three of those and they you know, and it doesn't quite work. And so if it's not quite working, then the Buddha gave these eight places where you can look 
and see if there's some holding. Mm. Okay. So uh, first one is wise view, which is just how you're seeing it. And that drives the whole process. Depending on how you see things, that will create intentions, unconscious intentions, you know, just orientation. So it's uh, wise view, wise intention. And then the next three have to do with how you relate to other people in the world. Um, so there's wise speech. And the Buddha had more to say about wise speech than anything else because it's the place where we get entangled the most. Mm -hmm. So third one is wise speech. Uh, and then there's wise action. Speech is a form of action, but speech is so much of itself, it took it out separately. So you look at your actions. Uh, and then there's a subtler one of that action, which is livelihood. We all need some way to um, manage, you know, keep body and mind stuff together in the world. And, and how, uh, you know, is there something harmful in the way uh, that we do that or not? Mm -hmm. And then the last three have to do with the practice itself. Um, and um, so one is, uh, I, I call it wise effort. So it takes some energy, but not strain. So that's what, so if you're straining in your practice, you can feel the tightness and need to uh, relax that. Um, the next one is, is the one that is, mistranslated most um it's uh it's usually translated as wise concentration but the, the word there is samadhi and what mm -hmm. samadhi is is a is a mind that is actually unified and relaxed mm. in english the word concentration implies too much effort yeah so yeah. bhante vimalamsi calls that uh you know collectedness so there's a settleness and then there's uh sati um mindfulness, just awareness. Mm -hmm. And that's a byproduct of all of it. So you can look at those eight if you're, if you're doing the first three, turning towards relaxing into and savoring or deepening, and those aren't really working, then you can look through those and you don't have to do them in order and just see if there's some place that's out of balance and that can help fine tune it. Oh, that was eight great. Fold, eight fold checklist. <laughs> I like that, that was great. Mm. So you obviously know so much um, of Buddhism, and I don't know, you, you probably know so much more than I could ever imagine uh, in terms of, you know, the any kind of Buddhist, any belief system. And uh, so what, if you know, you know, you know, the Eightfold Path and the Noble Truths and the, those are tenets to live by, how come you chose not to live the monastic lifestyle at this point like is that what what do you think you get out of being doug craft rather than being you know a, a, a monk um so you know monks um life is to withdraw from the world maybe not totally but but they're actually you know pull apart from it mm-hmm uh, and there's something in me that wants to be engaged. Yeah. And, um, and believe me, you know, a monk's life has strong appeal to me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just, I don't, so I do go on long retreats and do that sort of stuff. But in the end, um, you know, I have a wife. Uh, can't believe we've been married for 50 years. I've got 
I, I have two sons, I got some grandkids now. And, um, and my heart goes out with all of them. And so um, my path is a little more complicated. It's actually more one of a householder. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, strand you know, all kinds of, of stuff in that. I, I've retired from the ministry. Um, and so I could have more time just, just for teaching meditation. And there was, there was a time in my life, a long time, where actually building spiritual communities and all of the logistics and administration, all of that stuff that just comes with that. You know, mm -hmm. Had to rebuild our church at one point. Talked about a big you know, in the world project, mm -hmm. and there was there was a time when I just loved doing all that uh, nuts and bolts of what it's like to create a spiritual community. Mm -hmm. um, these days, I'm not drawn to it as much. I, I, but I still really love talking with people about you know their practice and who they are, and, and as people do well in their practice, and, and you know, and stuff moves along. There's uh, nothing that brings me more joy than that. So I do a lot of mentoring of people that such right now. Mm. But I, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll mm -hmm. how it goes. <laughs> I think what you just described, though, is is you know that's your, like you said that's your path. That's equally as important as being a monk. Like that's just that you know what's you know what's more. Um, liberating and liberating others in a way you know it's yeah. kind of like it's a beating like the taking the role of the bodhisattva that's mm -hmm. why i also i think of monks and i'm like well what necessarily is a monk trying to do other than liberate himself like you know i think there's a saying you could probably iterate it better than i could that um you know buddha uh buddha didn't want to stop his incarnations until every everybody was on the other side of the river so how was a monk really contributing to that other than their own personal in their body salvation that, you know, if they're, if, if somebody is just kind of like recluse and shut off from the world and literally almost quite literally shut off from the world. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the, what word to use other than value, but where is the like kind of spiritual value in that? Because if you're not helping others, which if we just concluded that others are also ourselves, then what do you, what are you really doing? You know? Um, has you ever met somebody who seems like they're, I don't know, partially actualized, you know, as, uh, you know, feels like they go really deep. They go really deep, like really far yeah, out people. Like, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's inspiring. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, you, you, you kind of see what's possible mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and I've been fortunate because I've, I've met a number of these these people, and and on you know, and on the one hand, it's like they're way out there, and on the other hand, I look at them and I say, you know, there's nothing about them that is essentially different than me, mm -hmm. and and so that like is a tremendous motivator. Mm. I know <laughs> what you mean. Know, or, you know, to to catch, I can I can see what's possible, and I can see that it's real. It's not just a fantasy. Mm. And I look at this person, and it's it's not like they've got, you know, um, different hormones and I do or something like that. They're you know fully human, and and yet that's what they do, uh, and that becomes, uh, yeah, is is an inspiration. I know exactly what you mean. 
We, we live in an incredibly complex society. Yes. Uh, there's, there, there's this image of one of the um, Buddhist gods of compassion that uh, has a thousand arms, you know, and each arm has a different hand on it, and each is doing something different. And so, but we need those thousand hands. We need all those different roles. We need people raising conscious children. We need people teaching meditation. We need people who are, can help heal bodies. We mm -hmm. need people who are gifted at educating people. You know? mm -hmm. And so what our, what our path is, see, I don't think we get to choose our path. It's, mm -hmm. it's really something that resonates with us. It's actually to find what our path is. And, and it's not that one is holier than the other because they're just all part of this you know, larger collective of all of us. Mm. Yeah, you're correct. I shouldn't judge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and judgments are just the mind's way of protecting itself. And um, so my response to that, because when I see myself judging, you know, it's the same. It's a reminder. It says, you know, it's all perfectly safe. It's okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That was great. So do you think obviously humanity is changing right we're moving toward what you just said like this multi-limbed being of uh compassion and just creating i don't know what we're creating but i think we're creating hopefully a better society through through a little struggle through a little strife right now and through a little uh growing pains i guess you could say so do, how do you think that we change like you said through raising our children consciously is this is this is that more important than kind of me trying to like have a conversation with somebody and say, Hey man, you got to wake up. You got to, you got to follow the, the, the eightfold path. Like, is, is, is it more important for social change for us to really raise the next generation to be just different people and raise good people? Is that more important? Like, do you think social change? My question is, do you think social change occurs over um, the course of generations? Well, I think it obviously has. I think it obviously has. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Ken Wilber. Who is it? Ken Wilber. I don't know Ken Wilber, no. Yeah, so, so uh, he's an incredibly bright and, and educated guy. Um, and what he's studied is the word consciousness has, has different meanings. Some, for some people, it's just synonymous with awareness. But the way he uses the term and other people do is is how we process information mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and how we humans process information. Well, you can see kids when they grow up, you know, it gets deeper and deeper, more subtle and sophisticated. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what he's been able to lay out pretty convincingly is how humanity, you know, over time has been uh, evolving higher, more complex uh, ways of integrating. Of processing? So, of processing, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, so I try to pull these off the top of my head. I'm going to embarrass myself. But uh, so at, at the Buddhist time, you know, so the highest level of consciousness that was generally available, there are always exceptions. People go way out, you know. Uh, but what is today we call traditional literal, which is what you think of as a fundamentalist. Mm hmm which in today's world, I mean, that's not the most advanced around by any means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that was in the Buddhist time. And that's, his stuff was passed down through traditional literal 
So that was stuff we talked about earlier about trying to figure out what he really said when the people passing along may have not gotten. Mm-hmm. And then, then you get uh, more into the scientific empirical, you know, where the traditional literal is kind of embedded with a, the empirical scientific method that stands back and looks at things more objectively. Mm-hmm. And then you get in a postmodern pluralism. Uh, and then where the leading edge today is up in areas that he calls integral, which uh, are people who can think in many different systems at once. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that you could actually take on a traditional literal outlook and, and to actually see what the world like looks like through those lens and take on you know, a scientific empirical and see and see how those different ways are. And those kinds of minds are much more integrative because they don't have to separate from other people in order to see how they think. Mm-hmm. So yes, we are definitely evolving uh, mm-hmm. as a species. And that doesn't mean that it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. One of the things that boosts um, the evolution is actually when a particular type of consciousness is no longer adequate mm-hmm. to the situation we're in, when we need to go deeper. But there's no guarantee that we actually will. I mean, we just need to blow ourselves up. <laughs> yeah, we could. There's this, always that possibility. This past year, you know, it, it seems like, you know, the world has been in more dire circumstances than I remember in my lifetime. Mm. Yeah. And that, that can really move us along. And we could also blow it, you know, and, uh, and no, it, you know, if you look back just even on this planet, 99.999% of the species that have ever been here are extinct. And there's no, you know, we could be extinct. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we could. I don't think we will. There's something in me that tells me maybe I'm just a little too idealistic. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. I don't think we're going to blow ourselves up. Uh, I think we'll be all right. But even if we do, we'll be all right. You know, <laughs> even if we do blow ourselves up, it's still going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I don't really have any other questions. Uh, I don't know, if really, if you have any other questions for me, you can ask them. If you have anything you want to get off your chest, if you really want to plug anything, uh, now's your time. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't come in with anything. You know, I... Uh... I wrote you and said, I think I should be prepared. And she said, no, we'll just, we'll just talk. So. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. You know, just kind of have a good conversation. Just wanted to get to know you and like your philosophy a little bit better. And I definitely did. And hopefully anybody who listened definitely did as well. And hopefully somebody got something from it. If nobody did, I did. So I appreciate you <laughs> coming on here. and. Uh, uh, well, I've, 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 I've written four books on, on meditation. And so I, I think I could go through all that stuff in probably about 20 hours. So. what's relevant to the moment so yeah definitely that's yeah i think that's kind of where um sorry i'm just going off again i think that's where like authenticity comes from is where we can kind of just don't have anything prepared and you know because that's kind of just like throwing off the whole vibe like even though we're not in the same room and actually having a conversation there is we want to keep that I try to keep. Oh, we were having a conversation. <laughs> we are having a conversation. It's just through, like we said before, through through magical ways, <laughs> and through that, I like to try to keep it authentic as possible because this is really not authentic. Using a this and this is like, 
it's some kind of weird contraption that are we're just you're just getting used to now so i think when you add another element of um i don't know if you want to say fakery but if you add another element of like kind of like trying to sway a conversation in a certain way through questions or through certain ways that you things that you want to talk about it it can take away some of the um authenticity of an interaction not always obviously but i think structure um kind of takes away from us just being real people me being real with you and you being real with me yeah well it's it's a it's a it's a non-dual dialectic you can uh, mm. structures, structures can can help and structures can strangle yeah and, uh, and free flow can be uh creative and spontaneous and it can sometimes just be messy and indulgent mm -hmm. yeah time and a place definitely yeah. time and a place but um yeah thank you very much Doug Kraft for coming on this was great um I'm definitely uh interested in some of your do you have like any guided meditations online um i have these people who have been doing all the stuff we've been taped and putting them out in, in the podcast mm -hmm. uh, yeah i have listened to actually a few of those yeah yeah and i don't know that there's many guided meditations in there because i tend to teach in a more traditional buddha style which uh, really sort of allows people to flow where it goes what what i when i'm working with people mentoring them i will actually sometimes guide them so it's like two of mm -hmm. us look there things but using group stuff i don't so that's a long that's answer of which the short answer is probably, i know what you mean it's, it's not like probably. traditional probably <laughs> yes probably go look for yourself <laughs> but yeah thank you very much doug craft this was a great conversation um that's that's all i can really say i'm eternally grateful for you coming oh. on Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, namaste. namaste and have a good day.